This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by NACLA, reporting on the Americas since 1967. Did you enjoy our recent episodes on Mexico and Venezuela? Go to NACLA.org, N-A-C-L-A.org. NACLA is the oldest and most widely read progressive magazine covering the Americas, praised by Noam Chomsky and Salvador Allende, vilified by Ronald Reagan, and placed under FBI surveillance during the Cold War. With resurgent right-wing governments on the rise across the hemisphere, there's never been a more critical time to keep up with Latin American politics and social movements. Some of my earliest organizing on the left was Latin American solidarity, and NACLA was then and continues to be an unparalleled and indispensable source for English-language news on the hemisphere's social movements and politics. Indeed, it's where I published my first piece of investigative journalism ever. Subscribe to NACLA today at NACLA.org and follow them on Facebook and Twitter. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm temporarily broadcasting from Santiago de Chile. As Marx wrote in The 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, humans make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. Their tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. A nightmare indeed. But what's so remarkable about right now is that decades if not centuries of built-up contradictions of American political economy have become impossible to provisionally resolve. The old order remains in place, but it has lost its trappings of naturalness, inevitability, and permanence. We can now discern a radically different future, in both great and horrible ways. Today, I'm discussing the 18th Brumaire, including Marx's take on revolution and reaction in mid-19th century France, the broader theories he develops about history and the relationship between politics and the class struggle, and how this all might apply today with political sociologist Dylan Riley. Before we get rolling, your support for this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig is indispensable to its existence. What's more, $5 a month gets you access to our newsletter. $10 gets you a copy of either Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism, Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity, or, coming soon, Feminism for the 99%, a manifesto by Cynthia Arutza, Tithi Bhattacharya, and Nancy Fraser. Contribute $20 or more, and we will send you a box of left-wing books. Please, contribute what you can now at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Oh, and also, I forgot to shamelessly self-promote my recent New York Times op-ed, The Case Against Border Security, which argues that Democrats must stop feeding the lie that the border is insecure and needs more security, and that they should instead follow their voters and fight for migrant rights and border demilitarization. I'll link to that in the show notes. Okay, 
Here's Dylan Riley, a professor of sociology at the University of California, Berkeley. He is the author of The Civic Foundations of Fascism in Europe, Italy, Spain, and Romania, 1870 to 1945, and the author of articles published in the American Journal of Sociology, the American Sociological Review, Catalyst, and the New Left Review, of which he is a member of the editorial committee. Dylan Riley, welcome to The Dig. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Let's start just by laying out the general history that Marx is analyzing in mid-19th century France and the key groups and personalities. We have Louis Bonaparte, the Royalists of the Party of Order, the Social Democrats of the Mountain, the Paris Proletariat, the Peasants, etc. So please set the stage, introduce the characters, and give a general sense of what this book is about and trying to argue. I'll give my sense of what I think uh, is going on in the book, but I should start with a disclaimer. I'm neither a historian of 19th century France, nor really an expert on this text in particular, which is, I think, if you think about it, maybe the most challenging of all of Marx's writings, even more so than Capital in a lot of ways, and get into why. Having said that, let me just give you a sort of a, a general, I guess, a capsule sense of what I think is important to keep in mind in approaching the 18th Brumaire. So it might be useful to begin actually just with, uh, you know, describing in a, in a certain way the, the kind of early part of the long 19th century. So obviously, the general context of Marx's 18th Brumaire is the sort of half century period that follows the French Revolution of 1789, that kind of 1789 to 1848 period that Eric Hobsbawm calls the age of revolution. The first thing to recall is just this very turbulent background. And I mean, I'm sure that many of the listeners of the dig will have some of this history already in their minds, but it might be useful to go through it just briefly. Yeah, definitely. There, there are sort of three big periods, right, before the um, 1848 uprisings themselves, there's the revolutionary period and its Napoleonic sort of um, coda from 1789 to 1815, right? And that's, of course, the period of the French Revolution itself and then the Napoleonic Wars that basically export the forms of the French Revolution to much of the rest of the European continent, then there's the restoration in which the kind of old regime comes roaring back in the period classically dated from 1815 to 1830. So that's the, the Congress of Vienna to the establishment of the so-called July monarchy. And then there's the, 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 this thing called the July monarchy itself from 1830 to 1848, which is a sort of, um, you could say, a kind of, you know, um, classical, uh, liberal kind of constitutional monarchy that kind of replaces this more conservative monarchy that had um, ruled in the preceding 15 years. Marx interprets those last two periods in terms of classes, really. He sees the restoration itself as the kind of, um, you could say, the kind of revenge of the landed aristocracy. And he interprets the July monarchy more as a kind of, you know, kind of bourgeois monarchy, 
um, essentially, you know, the, the social basis of that being high finance more than anything else. And so that's kind of the background. Now, the other thing um, to, to, to consider, of course, is the immediate background of the 1840s. If we think about the European economy in that period, the 1840s is really the decade in which you get the first big kind of railway boom. And so the, the, or the European railway network is being built out during that period. And uh, toward the end of the 1840s, there's, uh, you know, a classic kind of crisis of overproduction and um, a, a, a sharp cyclical downturn with deteriorating conditions of wages and employment. That's, in a sense, the immediate experiential background of uh, the 1848 uprising itself. And, of course, Marx's own um, political evolution, that sort of, you know, social misery. So it's really in February of 1848, on the basis of this, you know, increasing levels of popular immiseration, that you get a popular uprising against um, against the July monarchy. And this sparks, it, it's in Paris that this takes off, but it erupts all across Europe. It actually begins first in Palermo, Ah, interestingly enough, Um uh, you know, but it, it, yes, it's a European-wide, it's the, the, the springtime of people. So it's a European-wide series of uprisings. So there's an Italian, there's a Hungarian version of it, a Polish version of it, there's a German version of it. And of course, there's, you know, the, the central stage in a way is France, right? And that's the sort of February um, 1848 um, revolution, which interestingly enough is, in, of course, in some ways predicted by, and, uh, by the Communist Manifesto of 1848, which is written right, 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 right in that period, right? So we have this and the, the leadership of that of that movement in France, this is not true everywhere else in Europe, it, the social background of 1848 is quite heterogeneous across Europe. So but in France itself, it's really it is a, a um, the, the, the kind of Parisian working class is a, a central kind of force pushing this forward under you know, people like Louis Blanc and um, August Blanqui. Uh, and so there is a kind of, uh, you could say, a, a kind of working class and socialist thrust to this. But unlike 1789, and this becomes key in the analysis in the 18th premier itself, the peasantry remains basically passive during uh, the 1848 uprising itself. So that's kind of the, you could say that is the I guess the broader kind of whole 19th century background to the thing. So it is a difficult, I mean, the, the, the 18th Rumeir is quite difficult to kind of unpack in terms of this because it, it does have this kind of blow by blow narrative mixed in with these very general kind of um, theoretical speculations. But the basic uh, timeline, I'm going to put it this way. Um, in April of 1848, so kind of, the, in the immediate uh, aftermath, we could say, of the February um, uprising, there emerges a kind of, let's think of it as a kind of constitutional republic with um, slightly broadened suffrage. So it's no longer a, a monarchical regime, and it's dominated by a group called the moderate Republicans. And it's against this regime that you get a more radical kind of revolutionary uprising in June uh, of 1848. And that is kind of the key background moment to the 18th Brumaire. Uh, Marx refers to it as the June days, right? And this is a, um, uh, you know, an uprising really of, of tens of thousands of workers and is ferociously repressed by 
one of the central characters in the 18th premiere, this man named Cavagnac, who's a general who had kind of made his career repressing colonials in Algeria and then comes back to Paris in 1848 to use the same techniques on the working class. In some ways, it's reminiscent of Franco in Spain later, who also you know, kind of made his mark first in, in North Africa before, you know, unleashing reactionary violence against the Spanish working class during the Spanish Civil War. But that's kind of a parenthetical comment. That's the June days. Uh, this is a really key moment, in a sense, in European history itself, because it's the, it really is the moment of, an, of the final, you could say, irrevocable break between the bourgeoisie and the and the working class and and in some ways at least for marx this signals you know the the beginning of what we could think of as the modern um class struggle from that period on you know you really have um the 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 working class as such kind of recedes into the background and so the rest of the of the 18th brumaire in terms of the kind of narrative in a way um, is uh, tracing what you could think of as a kind of uh, increasing, increasingly narrow uh, social basis for the parliamentary regime in France until uh, it disappears finally in December of 1851 with Napoleon's coup. So the stages in that story, um, we could think of in, in the first instance, the election of, of Bonaparte himself, which happens on... Um, 10th of December, 1848. Um, and it's a, quite a striking event. Uh, Bonaparte is actually the first popularly elected head of state in the world, uh, if you discount the American case because of the Electoral College. And he, so he begins to win this kind of popular following. Um, and then, you know, much of the 18th Romero is about the struggles between Bonaparte and his various kind of um, bourgeois opponents. And the, the essential argument uh, there, we could say, is that, um, you know, having, you know, crushed their uh, potential class allies, each opponent feels itself increasingly isolated with respect to Bonaparte until finally he emerges as kind of the last man standing in this unfolding drama that plays out over these three years after 1848. So before we dive in further, can you say a little bit about what this book is about beyond the specific historical events that Marx is analyzing? The, I think the way to understand, or the way I understand the book, is really in terms of, you have to understand it in terms of Marx's own intellectual and political development. So it is really important to realize that, of course, the 18th Brumaire is written just th really three, four years after the Communist Manifesto, right? We could think about the, the the fundamental puzzle that Marx is dealing with here. Really, is just simple enough at, at one level. Marx, of course, predicts a revolutionary break. I mean, he's not the only one to do so, by the way. But he predicts a revolutionary break in 1848. It seems that his prediction is immediately confirmed by historical events. But then we get the 18th Brumaire, right? And that, of course, presents both um, a political but also a theoretical challenge to Marx. So the question that dominates the entire thing— Because the workers of France united and they got Louis Bonaparte. Right. 
Why? Why is history running in reverse? I mean, this is the. I think in in, in if we wanted to put get to the essence of the question, the que- the, the the question is why is the scheme of 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 the social development that was so brilliantly and kind of laconically um, expounded in the Communist Manifesto, why does it seem not to apply in this case all of a sudden? And so that's the puzzle that he's um, constructing, or that that's the puzzle that he's dealing with here. And so in answering that question, I think that the 18th Romero is, is not a fully coherent, uh, it doesn't pr- provide a fully coherent response to that question, but it does provide a couple of different sort of suggestions about what the, what the process is. And I would lay them out really in, I think there are two main things that um, we, you, you can kind of draw out from them. One of them is, and it's one, I think that on a quick reading, it's easy to miss. But if you closely read Marx's analysis, it's not so clear exactly how he understands the French political economy. Maybe the problem, that is to say, maybe the problem from Marx's perspective is that French society in some important respects is underdeveloped. There's this large peasantry even the bourgeoisie itself is a kind of state-dependent, rent-seeking stratum. So this is not quite the bourgeoisie of the Communist Manifesto. And of course, this, these, this isolates the working class. And it also means that the French bourgeoisie itself, in some ways, is op- very open to betraying its mission, historical mission of establishing the representative state. So these kind of particular historical factors lead to a kind of isolation of the of the French working class. That's like one kind of lesson you could draw from it. Another lesson, of course, is, is and this is something, I think this is something that, that Mike Davis has recently pointed to as well, is the importance, of course, of class alliances, right? So that by the 18th Brumaire, Marx is thinking much more strategically about politics than he is really in the Communist Manifesto, you know, and then he's thinking about the problem that really, in order for the working class to uh, emerge as an effective political force, it must articulate its interests as the interests of the nation, right? And that's that's the way that, in a sense, to use a Gramscian term, that's the way that the, the working class can make a claim to hegemony, right? The third thing that's going on is the um, reality of the state, and that is something that I think will continue to haunt Marx through his writings on the civil wars in France um, as well. That is to say that when we're thinking about the you know, predicted revolutionary break, we must remember that there is this kind of ultimate backstop to the social order that can't be wished away. And in the case of the 18th Brumaire, you kind of see, obviously, the reality of the state coming forward as the final guarantor, we could say, of the existing order. And this is um, this is something that, you know, you, you get a sense of that in the 18th Romero that you, you, you really don't get that in earlier versions of Marx's analysis. All right. I think we're well equipped to dive in deeper. I want to first turn to the intellectual milieu that Marx is debating within. He takes liberal assessments of the French situation to task and also that of anarchist uh, Proudhon. He writes that, quote, Victor Hugo confines himself to bitter and witty invective against the responsible publisher of the coup d'etat. The event itself appears in his work like a bolt from the blue. He does not notice that he makes this individual great instead of little 
by ascribing to him a personal power of initiative, such as would be without parallel in world history. Proudhon, for his part, seeks to represent the coup d'etat as the result of antecedent historical development. Unnoticeably, however, his historical construction of the coup d'etat becomes a historical apologia for its hero. Thus, he falls into the error of our so-called objective historians. I, on the contrary, demonstrate how the class struggle in France created circumstances and relationships that made it possible for a grotesque mediocrity to play a hero's part. That's uh, a little hint at how great the prose is <laughs> in this work. Um, what is Marx taking issue with with these two approaches and what does he offer as an alternative? Well, it's a very good question. I mean, I would say that I thought, you know, in, in your queries to me, you had suggested that there was some parallel between this and the way that a lot of, you know, kind of liberal discussions discuss Trump. And it's true. Uh, it's a kind of, you know, just a kind of monstrosity, a kind of black swan event that has come out of nowhere. So it's not an explanation. And if you don't have an explanation then you can't develop, uh, you know, a rational politics in response to that, right? So there's a connection, obviously, in Marx's mind between developing an actual explanation of the event and thinking about what to do about about it, we could say, to put it that way. And then, you know, with, with Proudhon, it's kind of the other side of the coin. Here, it's a kind of, you know, it's a totally kind of objectivist uh, account. And I think one of Marx's really central points in the 18th Brumaire, you could say, in a sense, the central point is the necessity um, in thinking through the future revolutionary possibilities. It's the necessity of the working class forming an alliance with those social actors with whom alliances are possible. And in the French case, of course, that's the peasantry. In the 19th, 19th century French case, that's the peasantry. Um, of course, that would take a different form today. Um, but that's the, I think that's the key um, kind of message. You also see there the way in which Marx th sees this and recognizes this as a fundamental challenge for his own theory, in a sense, that is to say, oh, well, how can your, you know, account based on class struggles and objective historical forces explain this event, which seems so idiosyncratic and so dependent on the individual personality? And Marx's argument, of course, is that it's precisely the class struggle that can explain why an individual like that suddenly emerges as decisive in a particular historical moment. As you just said, Bad analysis makes for bad politics. And Marx writes that Hugo's sort of thinking made the French opponents of Bonaparte unable to clearly understand and counter his rise, which again reminded me of all of this liberal certainty ahead of November 2016, the certainty that Trump's grotesqueness and unorthodoxy would ensure his defeat. Marx writes, quote, as ever, Weakness had taken refuge in a belief in miracles, fancies the enemy overcome when he was only conjured away in imagination, and it lost all understanding of the present in a passive glorification of the future that was in store for it and of the deeds it had in petto, but which it merely did not want to carry out as yet. Those heroes who seek to disprove their demonstrated incapacity by mutually offering each other their sympathy 
and getting together in a crowd, had tied up their bundles, collected their laurel wreaths in advance, and were just then engaged in discounting on the exchange market the republics in partibus for which they had already providently organized the government personnel with all the calm of their unassuming disposition. What is Marx saying here about these French politicians who were prematurely rushing to measure the drapes? Again, the quality of the prose is is pretty striking. (laughs) (laughs) It's Um, incredible. It's an incredible book. (laughs) It is. It is a quite amazing book. Look, I mean, in my view, the 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 basic kind of point that he's that he's after here is that. Well, we can talk more about the you know the, the the way in which Marx understands the blindness of the historical characters who are kind of acting in this drama, right? But the fundamental thing about this is that Marx sees that the, the, there is a connection between their inability to understand the historical process and their political blindness in the immediate moment in which they are acting. <laughs> And that's a connection that he will insist on actually throughout the book. That's what I kind of get from this. That's kind of the core, I think, of this, these kind of ideas. And along those lines, one other passage, he writes, In no period do we, therefore, find a more confused mixture of high-flown phrases in actual uncertainty and clumsiness, or more enthusiastic striving for innovation and more deeply rooted domination of the old routine, of more apparent harmony of the whole of society, and more profound estrangement of its elements. The first thing I thought of when I read that was of the early Obama years, when it seemed that all of these profound contradictions, political, economic, social, whatever, of American society had somehow been pacified in the very persona and person of the new president. I think there's a parallel in the sense that um, the actual, we could say, we could put it this way, that the actual historical function of Obama and the self-awareness, his own self-awareness and self-understanding were massively diverged from one another, right? I actually think the same thing may be true of Trump in an opposite sense, but we can talk about that. Um, we yeah. can talk about that in a bit. So in the 18th Brumaire, one of the reasons that it does have this kind of evergreen character to it is that he, I think, really acutely identifies the systematic disjuncture between the roles that political actors appear to be playing and indeed the roles that they understand themselves to be playing and the actual functions that they fulfill um, in in the political process. And of course, you know, Obama's actual function was to save the banks. I mean, to be very crude about it, right? But, um, you know, it was presented as, uh, you know, the uh, transcendence of, you know, all of these deep-seated problems in American society, obviously, most centrally uh, about race, uh, you know, the kind of so the, the mythology in which he was wrapped is completely part of understanding uh, that historical moment. And you could put it even further to say that it was precisely that mythology that allowed him to act in the way that he did. But, you know, we can talk about that more. Yeah. But that's I think that's the idea that you're picking up there. Along those lines, he makes the the point that it's that sort of mythology 
that can make any given order seem so solid. But as he wrote elsewhere, all that is solid melts into air. And, and he makes an argument in the 18th Brumaire that any given order, no matter how solid it seems, can actually be quite fragile because it is always contingent on a set of conditions that underpin it. And he writes, quote, The Constitution, the National Assembly, the dynastic parties, the blue and the red Republicans, the heroes of Africa, the thunder from the platform, the sheet lightning of the daily press, the entire literature, the political names and the intellectual reputations, the civil law and the penal code, the liberté, égalité, fraternité, and the second Sunday in May 1852, all has vanished like a phantasmagoria before the spell of a man who even his enemies do not make out to be a sorcerer. Universal suffrage seems to have survived only for a moment, in order that with its own hand it may make its last will and testament before the eyes of the world and declare in the name of the people itself, all that exists deserve to perish. What argument is Marx making here? And how do you think it might be applied to our own order, which certainly hasn't descended into dictatorship, but is undergoing a profound crisis that people didn't even foresee taking place, even amidst the most intense days of the financial crisis? I guess the way that I would think about it is to say that the the political life that unfolds in a, in a capitalist democracy is full of high drama. In a sense, I would say that that Marx is is trying in a way to penetrate that to, as it were, not in a sense get lost in the, in the sort of pyrotechnic conflict that 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 really constitutes the political scene in a kind of bourgeois capitalist democracy, if we wanted to put it in that way. Although even to apply the term democracy to the situation in France that he's writing at the time is a little anachronistic. The the point being that, yes, in one sense, the problem is that in, in this world of the of the political, you put it that that well, you know, people have this illusion of solidity and fixity. That's, I think, in a sense, true. The idea that there are these hallowed we can see it, you know, in our own kind of in in the U.S. You know, that there are these hallowed routines or what you know is constantly being referred to as norms that are norms and institutions. Right? <laughs> but that these things are, you know, they 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 can be they can disappear very quickly once you know certain real issues that that for him are class issues come to the fore, right? And so. The political scene is kind of, um, in a sense, it's a necessary thing to reproduce a capitalist society, and we can talk about why that's the case, but it also has an ephemeral character, and very rapid changes are possible in it. I think it's particularly hard for, if you're coming from, I mean, in the case of the United States, with a cult of the Constitution and these other features of our state... It's it's even more extreme in some ways, this phenomenon. On that same point about the fixity and power given institutions and a particular historical moment, Marx writes some of his most famous lines. He writes, quote, Hegel remarks somewhere that all facts and personages of great importance in world history occur, as it were, twice. He forgot to add 
the first time as tragedy, the second as farce. He continues, Men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. The tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living, and just as they seem to be occupied with revolutioning themselves and things, creating something that did not exist before, precisely in such epics of revolutionary crisis, they anxiously conjure up the spirits of the past to their service, borrowing from them names, battle slogans, and costumes in order to present this new scene in world history in time-honored disguise in borrowed language. It, there's a bit of a attention, maybe a complimentary one, from what we were just discussing here, where the, the passage we were just discussing shows how Marx is arguing that any given political economic order is fragile and ultimately contingent on a set of circumstances that can change rapidly and thus that that order can come tumbling down or rapidly transform as a result. But but in these passages, he's arguing about the constraints of history and structure. What is his argument here? I think actually this links to what, what we were saying before about the relationship between having um, an adequate politics and having an actual understanding of you know, the historical situation that a group or, or a class faces. And what Marx, I think, is saying in those famous passages is actually that there's a paradoxical way in which the actors in the historical drama that he's describing, in order to act, must, in a sense, not fully grasp the nature of their own action. They, and that means they must not, they must misunderstand in some fundamental way their own role in the historical process. But of course, Marx's project, which, which is both a political project and a theoretical project, is to overcome that. That is to say, his project is to, in fact, endow the working class with a real understanding of its role in history. And this structure of class consciousness is, that is to say, a structure of class consciousness in which the consciousness of the class is at the same time an understanding of the real dynamics of history and the real situation that is being faced. That structure of class consciousness is particular to the working class. This is what Marx is saying. And all previous classes in some respects have been able to act only through a misunderstanding of their own role in the historical process. And thus the invocation of Hegel, of course, here. Because what he's referring to is, is Hegel's understanding of historical development, which is, of course, also an understanding of a self-understanding of the agent of historical change in history. And Hegel's point is that these two things, that is to say self-understanding and reality have been, you know, split apart and they're coming together. And, you know, well, there's a similar thing going on here with Marx. That is to say, the way in which classes put, you know, the, the, the reason that people have these blinders is because in order to act in the in, in order to act, in order to fulfill their own role in history, they must in some way fail to understand that. And they act as if they were actors in the past, if that makes sense. But then he argues that to be successful, 
that they have to look toward the future. He he talks about his uh, this is this is what he says about um, particularly about you know the working class. I think that's that's the point. They have to learn their own language. What is that language? That's the language of of uh, that Marx is in a sense, or you could say socialists in general are trying to construct. Right? That's the new language. Now that implies a different relationship, uh, a different sort of historical agency. It is no longer a historical agency that in, in, in which the agent can act only by wearing the costumes of the past, but in which um, there's a real understanding of the historical moment. So I think that science and politics are very, very closely linked in these lines, although it's a, it's a bit implicit. His passage on precisely that is, quote, the social revolution of the 19th century cannot draw its poetry from the past but only from the future. Mm-hmm. It cannot begin with itself before it is stripped off all superstition in regard to the past. Earlier revolutions required recollections of past world history in order to drug themselves concerning their own content. In order to arrive at its own content, the revolution of the 19th century must let the dead bury their dead. There the phrase went beyond the content. Here the content goes beyond the phrase. The way to understand this is in two respects. First of all, when Marx suggests that the the French revolutionaries, they had to, in a sense, you know, they dress up in the costumes of the Roman Republic and then the Roman Empire. That's obviously a sort of false understanding, right? This is not the Roman Republic and not the Roman Empire. (laughs) But precisely in order to in order to carry out their historical task, which is to establish, in a sense, the modern representative state, that is to say, the bourgeois revolution, they must misunderstand their own role in history, right? So that there is a necessary relationship in the case of the bourgeoisie, and really all kind of pre, you could say, working class, before the working class, there's a necessary relationship between their acting as a class and their misunderstanding the real nature of their action. But the relationship is different in the case of the working class. The working class, to act as a class, must actually understand its own role in the historical process without mystification. This is why it has a special form of historical agency. Because it, under, it, is, it is no longer the case that the working class dresses up in the costumes of the past. It must learn the poetry of the future. It must learn, really, to uh, it must learn what its own historical role actually is, and unlike the pre, you know, unlike the bourgeoisie in this case, it cannot effectively act as an agent if it dresses up in the costumes of the past. That's, I think, the difference that he's talking about. So when he talks about their phrase went beyond the content, well, in the past, right? He's, you know, this is this whole business about. You know, in the, the birth of bourgeois society required that bourgeois revolutionaries dress up in the historical costumes of the past and play the role of the great sort of political actors of classical antiquity. And so the content is the establishment of bourgeois society, the prosaic reality of bourgeois society. The phrase is, you know, these costumes of classical antiquity. But in the case, in a sense, in the case of the working class, well, the content is human emancipation, right? And the phrase, in a sense, is the phrase, in a sense, is in fact, we could say, 
the self-understanding of the historical situation. So, you know, sort of science in some broad sense or historical materialism, right? So that, I think, is the difference that he's getting at. Is it fair to say that what Marx is getting at in part there is what we've come to understand as reactionaries' persistent need to reinvent tradition? It could be that. I think it's also the case. I, I think there's, there's, um, there is certainly, and, and that we should talk about the nature of the cult of Napoleon, because that is a fascinating business, right? It's like make, I guess it's like make France great again, right? <laughs> this is the <laughs> kind of, the kind of thing that's going on here. It's also very much about this very particular way, I think, in which Marx understands the way that class consciousness is supposed to work in different historical epochs and for different classes. And that's the part that I think is probably the most challenging part in trying to understand what it is that Marx is trying to say. To put it really simply, you know, we need to think about why, why is it? Why is it that the bourgeoisie has to act in these ways? Why is it that the bourgeoisie must don the costumes of the past, right? That That's never quite clarified, in a sense, in the 18th Brumaire itself. One thing that I want to discuss on this point is Marx's argument as to how a socialist revolution or how a proletariat gets to that point at which it is firmly forward-looking. And it seems like he's making a both analytical and a prescriptive argument He's both giving revolutionaries advice, but also arguing that the dynamics of any revolutionary moment are also heavily shaped by contingent historical dynamics. He writes, quote, bourgeois revolutions like those of the 18th century storm swiftly from success to success. Their dramatic effects outdo each other. Men and things seem set in sparkling brilliance. Ecstasy is the everyday spirit, but they are short-lived. Soon they have attained their zenith, and a long, crapulent depression lays hold of society before it learns soberly to assimilate the results of its storm and stress period. On the other hand, proletarian revolutions, like those of the 19th century, criticize themselves constantly, that's familiar, interrupt themselves continually in their own course, come back to the apparently accomplished in order to begin it afresh, decried with unmerciful thoroughness the inadequacies, weaknesses, and paltriness of their first attempts, seem to throw down their adversary only in order that he may draw new strength from the earth and rise again, more gigantic before them, recoil ever and anon from the indefinite prodigiousness of their own aims, until a situation has been created which makes all turning back impossible. What is Marx's argument here about how history creates moments that are more or less ripe for transformational politics, if, if that's the correct way to read it? I think what he's after there, of course, is the whole fraught question about what the future revolution will look like. And he is unsure. I mean, there's a, an attempt, in a sense, to break out of, we could say, the Procrustean bed of 1789 and its sequels, right? That is to say that it's not necessarily going to be the storming of the Bastille and all of that kind of stuff, right? But what the real nature of that is, 
<laughs> this is something that I think is going to occupy, you know, Marx in a sense for the rest of his, you know, in his political writings, occupies him for the rest of his life. And, and to a certain extent, right, is still the key question that people on the left uh, need to grapple with, the key political question. So I don't know exactly, you know, how to how to answer that other than to say it's clear that for one that whatever revolution is coming is going to take a different form than this kind of seizing of the of 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 the of the Bastille and the great days of the French Revolution and two the emphasis on constant criticism that is to say it will be a revolution uh that is self-aware that incorporate that is constantly basically incorporating a, you know an understanding of itself and its role in society in trying to drive the revolution forward so that in a sense uh, there's a cognitive component to this revolutionary struggle that's very important to emphasize for for, for Marx but do we have a I mean of course there's a there's a specific strategic recommendation I think in the 18th Brumaire, and that is basically, you know, if the working class is isolated, it will not be able to seize power. It must establish class alliances. It must establish alliances with those groups that are outside of the core, you know, of the manufacturing working class. That's very clear. And of course, in the in the 19th century, and this will be true all the way, you know, obviously all the way through the Russian Revolution and beyond, that other actor is the peasantry. Um, so that's one sort of um, strategic recommendation. But on the broader question of really how to think about the uh, about the, the proletarian revolution, I don't think you, I don't think there's a clear answer in in the 18th Brumaire, and I don't think that Marx ever actually you know really adequately addresses this question. It does seem as though that he's arguing there that that there are certain limitations that and possibilities that particular historical moments provide. Not that he's making an entirely deterministic argument, but he seems to be suggesting to me that that the French proletariat were not in a situation, maybe in both internally and vis-a-vis broader political economic structures and the, the, the class dynamics those entailed at the time, that the outcome w- was somewhat predictable based on that those set of circumstances. And it makes me think of something like like Occupy Wall Street, where people talk about it as a failure. But it seems to me that given the the historical context that it took off in, right. that it sort of did the most that it could do and then ended and laid the groundwork for bigger and bolder and more systematic left politics that would follow in its wake. So this is a very... I mean, I think this is a really, really key question. And, 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 and so we should maybe think a little bit about the different things that are going on. So on the first point that you made, I completely agree with you. And here's how I would put it. But this is sort of what I was saying when I was talking about this sort of general summary of the 18th Brumaire. There are two lines of argument, and they're not actually fully compatible with one another that run through this book. One of them is that um, 
well, in a sense, this is this is in a sense this is a kind of retro projection from the civil wars in France. But one line of of of, of Marx's argument is that what the 18th Brumaire shows is that the bourgeoisie has basically lost its ability any longer to rule, but the proletariat has not yet assumed the mantle to rule, right? And so in this interregnum we get this kind of very weird figure, a kind of transitional figure between the old and the new, right? Um, what that suggests, actually, it, that, that suggests, in a sense, um, uh, a society that in some sense is overripe. That is to say, you know, the bourgeoisie has run its historical course. Now time's up, but the proletariat, for whatever reason, hasn't quite caught up to the situation. But the other argument, of course, that's going through this uh, piece is that mid-19th century France is not a fully developed capitalist society. It has this huge peasant population. It has a bourgeoisie that is fundamentally state-dependent so that the isolation of the working class is, you know, it's not just a kind of accident. It has actually these real foundations in, um, the, French, uh, in the French social structure. So you kind of get the sense it's, it's never entirely clear whether the French, whether France is being presented as the last word in sort of you know development, or whether this is a this is a kind of a, a you know a kind of a theory of, of of political and economic backwardness. Those are the two theories that he's kind of putting forward in the 18th Brumaire. Now on this business about, I mean, how do you think about success and failure and contingency and necessity and so on? I mean, that's a very difficult, I think that's a very difficult um, set of discussions to, to enter into in some ways. I mean, obviously the question of contingency has to be specified with respect to the actual, you know, objective possibilities that are embedded in any historical moment. So in order to be contingent, in order for contingency to matter, you have to have a strong sense of necessity, right? You have to have a strong sense that certain structures were in place that could have allowed certain things to happen, that foreclosed certain alternatives, but that left others open. And that, um, therefore, that political action actually mattered in some way for the outcome in a way that we can, we can specify. And the other thing, of course, is that your interpretation of Occupy Wall Street, we could say, well, we don't really know whether it was a success or a failure yet, Right. That's the point that you're making. Too early. It's too yeah. early, right? As we don't know whether the French Revolution was a success or failure yet. It's too early. Or the Russian Revolution, <laughs> for that matter. And Marx does have words of praise for the Parisian working class, even though they were defeated in a narrow, short-term sense and pretty brutally. He writes, quote, It had shown at the same time that in Europe, the questions at issue are other than that of republic or monarchy. It had revealed that here, bourgeois republic signifies the unlimited despotism of one class over other classes. Yes, that's 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 exactly right. I mean that th this is this is sort of what I, I guess this is what I was also suggesting out at the beginning. For Marx, obviously, the 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 class struggles around 1848. This is the this is the sort of moment of transition in which what's on the agenda now is no longer, as you put it, republic versus monarchy. Uh, it is, you know, socialism versus capitalism, very broadly speaking. Or to put it differently, this is the moment of the break uh, between, the final break between the working class and, and the bourgeoisie, right? Now, I mean, you know, this is the kind of, 
parted way of thinking about it, but it is, I think it is pretty true to what Marx is thinking is that, that after 1848, the bourgeoisie, for him, cannot really play um, a historically progressive role. And that's kind of what he's suggesting there. And it seems like as though he's praising the French working class for revealing that even in their yeah, for revealing that, demystifying that. That's right. Shattering the 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 bourgeoisie's hegemony and their legitimacy. That's exactly right. It's sort of like the stakes are clear after this, right? That's that's kind of what the, the and that's I think what he sees. That's how he's interpreting the whole historical process of the rise of Bonapartism in a way, of rise of Bonaparte in France. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about Marx's take on the bourgeois republic. He writes that it is quote a domination which in general was only possible under the form of the parliamentary republic, for only under this form could the two great divisions of the French bourgeoisie unite, and thus put the rule of their class, instead of the regime of a privileged faction of it, on the order of the day. But he writes that there's a contradiction inherent to this. Quote, Instinct taught them that the republic, true enough, makes their political rule complete, but at the same time undermines its social foundation, since they must now confront the subjugated classes and contend against them without mediation, without the concealment afforded by the crown, without being able to divert the national interest by their subordinate struggles among among themselves and with the monarchy. He's arguing that a bourgeois republic is the perfect if highly contradictory vehicle for capitalist class rule, but is he arguing against electoral democracy as such or just a particular sort. There's no sense in which he would be arguing against electoral democracy as such. I mean, look at his writings on the commune. There's a lecture, he's praising electoral democracy of a certain sort. Not, of course, representative democracy, but uh, obviously the elections all over the place. There's a difficulty in quite grasping the import of, of this. And here's what I would say about it. It's not clear. I mean, remember Marx's own historical experience. It's not at all clear to Marx that universal suffrage or even broad suffrage is compatible with the reproduction of capitalist property in the mid-19th century, since there are really no examples of it outside of the United States, which is a very particular case. Right? And even then it's limited in a variety of ways still in 1848. And even then it's, it's, it's limited in, in all of the ways that we know about. So it's not clear to him that, that, to put it broadly, that capitalism and democracy are compatible with one another. But he's also arguing, and in this I think he has a really important insight, he's arguing that if, if you think about the nature of capital as a class, it is inherently one that is riven with economic uh, conflicts, that is to say, internal to it, right? There are fractions of capital. Now, in the case that he's talking about, it's land versus finance. But of course, there are many, many other kind of specific economic interests that are particular to particular fractions of the capitalist class. And in order for that class to act as a class, this I think is what he's suggesting, there must be some institution through which those economic interest conflicts are hashed out, articulated, articulated as a kind of general interest of the class as a whole. And that's the role that he accords parliament. What he didn't see 
And I think this is the, actually, if you wanted to put it this way, this is the trick of modern electoral democracy. What he did not see is that it would be possible to have a, a modern representative democracy without the fundamental class divisions that uh, exist in every capitalist society emerging into the political arena. And then that's the trick of, of, of the modern representative state, is that politics is about everything except for class. And that's what allows, in a sense, for the political reproduction of capital. Anyway, that's the way I sort of see this. And Marx, by contrast, would have predicted that universal suffrage would eventually lead to all of the contradictions of capitalism to come to the fore and lead to some sort of transition to socialism. I think it's, yes, because he couldn't have imagined. I mean, how could he have imagined... I think, you know, opening up the, the, the door of a really a, a, a effective suffrage when you have, you know, a really, you know, sort of militant working class and so on. This he, would, he saw as a you know, potentially fatal problem. So I think what Marx was saying is that there's this contradiction that the bourgeoisie needs to have representative democracy in some sense in order to articulate its own interests as a class. But it also can't afford that. Because that would let the working class in through the back door, as it were, and um, you know create this danger from below. But in a, in a sense, we could say that, and and, and so the eighteenth primaire is the is the outcome of that contradiction. But we could say that the trick, actually, of modern representative democracy is that proved not to be such a difficult contradiction to resolve, or it was at least resolvable in some in some respects. Provisionally, again and again. Provisionally. For, yes. You know, there's both these very um, important insight into the nature of class rule, um, but there's also just the – we should always keep in mind he doesn't ever really have the experience of a modern representative democracy. So that's an important thing just to think think about when we're, when we're trying to figure out what he's saying there and draw lessons from it. It's on this issue of the relationship between the bourgeoisie and the state that Marx makes – his classic and forever debated and discussed argument about the relationship of a material base to an ideological and political superstructure. Specifically here, he's arguing that the two monarchist factions who sought a restoration of two different royal houses, the Bourbon and the Orleans, are not fundamentally divided by a difference in their principled allegiance to one crown or another. He writes, quote, here in the bourgeois republic, which bore neither the name Bourbon nor the name Orleans, but the name Capital, they had found the form of state in which they could rule conjointly. He continues, quote, What kept the two factions apart, therefore, was not any so-called principles. It was their material conditions of existence, two different kinds of property. It was the old contrast between town and country, the rivalry between capital and landed property. Upon the different forms of property, upon the social conditions of existence, rises an entire superstructure of distinct and peculiarly formed sentiments, illusions, modes of thought, and views of life. The entire class creates and forms them out of its material foundations and out of the corresponding social relations. He goes on, quote, they do their real business as the party of order. 
that is, under a social, not under a political title, as representatives of the bourgeois world order, not as knights of errant princesses, as the bourgeois class against other classes, not as royalists against the republicans. Explain what Marx is arguing here, and to touch on some of the debates over this argument, do you think it allows for sufficient autonomy for things like ideology, politics, culture, and to that we could add racism, sexism, colonialism, vis-a-vis economics? Let me start by explaining what I think is being said there. I'll begin by saying, obviously, the historical point you laid out um, well enough, um, that there's this kind of conflict between these two royalist factions. He interprets that conflict as a conflict between land and, 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 and kind of finance capital, basically. And then he says that they do their real business as the party of order. I think one way of thinking about that is to say that what Marx is really after there is to suggest that classes do not actually bear a one-to-one kind of correlation with political party organizations, right? That in some respects, the um, articulation of class interest requires uh, a kind of intra-class political party struggle. The way that I would think about this in a way is to suggest that the politics of a capitalist democracy is normally about all kinds of different things, right? That is to say the political divisions. So we have discussions about the outrageous things that the latest outrageous thing that Trump has said, right? Or, you know, someone trying to um, do away with rights of, of various sorts and, um, you know, the horrible things that are going on at the border and so on. But what's really the class interest, of course, is what poly- what doesn't enter into that sphere, right? That is to say that there is a kind of scene of pyrotechnics. And then underneath that, in some respects, there's a fundamental consensus, right? And you could sort of think about that as the, this, this, is, this is the way in which, you know, obviously, in some ways, it's a forced reading. But in a way, that's what Marx is thinking about with this idea of the party of order, right? That there's a, there's a fundamental kind of class interest that somehow underlies all of these kind of squabbles on the surface that are carried out in terms of other things, you know, political party labels or whatever else you want to call them. Now, in terms of this business about, you know, that you're raising, which is a good question, well, what, how does Marx think about the other bases of political, I mean, political division, of which there are many, right? And I don't know how Marx would think about them, but I think there's a way of thinking about this issue in a fairly straightforward manner, which is to say, basically, really two basic points. One, of course, is that politics in, in, uh, in a capitalist democracy is about lots of other things than class. In fact, it's mostly not about class. And that's kind of um, the point. Because capitalism is like the systemic consensus point. It's the premise. Exactly. The other thing to say about it is that the elimination of class differences would also not eliminate the, the other bases of, uh, of social difference and therefore wouldn't eliminate politics either. So in a socialist society, I think there would be all sorts of political conflict, um, but that would not be, as it were, warped 
by the kind of underlying magnetic field of class polarization. Social reproduction theorists would argue that you need to tackle all of these things at once because capitalist accumulation and exploitation fundamentally relies on these other spheres of exploitation and, and expropriation. Yes. Well, I think that, um, I mean, I think that Nancy Fraser's work has been really important in this regard and others. But yeah, so that's a whole question about how to think about the, the conditions of reproduction for capitalism. But my point is, is that it sort of moves these things outside of the superstructure structure dynamic somewhat. And, makes, and puts them all on the structural level. Yes, I think that's true. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles. Perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Common Wind, Afro-American Currents in the Age of the Haitian Revolution by Julius S. Scott, with a foreword by Marcus Redeker. The Common Wind is a gripping and colorful account of the intercontinental networks that tied together the free and enslaved masses of the New World. Having delved deep into the gray obscurity of official 18th century records in Spanish, English, and French, Julius Scott has written a powerful history from below. Scott follows the spread of rumors of emancipation and the people behind them, bringing to life the protagonists in the slave revolution. Though the common wind is credited with having, quote, opened up the black Atlantic with a rigor and a commitment to the power of written words, the manuscript remained unpublished for 32 years. Now, after receiving wide acclaim from leading historians of slavery in the New World, it has been published by Verso for the first time, with a foreword by the academic and author Marcus Redeker. The Common Wind, Afro-American Currents in the Age of the Haitian Revolution, by Julius S. Scott, with a foreword by Marcus Redeker. Out now from Verso Books. One of Marx's key arguments in this book is about capitalists' relationship to the state's repressive apparatuses. During the period in France that Marx is describing, it was liberals, if I have this right, who mobilized with the hard right against the proletariat. But in doing so, they also legitimated the forces of repression and reaction that would ultimately come for them, repress them, and eliminate them as independent political forces as well. He writes, quote, During the June days, all classes and parties had united in the party of order against the proletarian class as the party of anarchy, of socialism, of communism. They had saved society from the enemies of society. They had given out the watchwords of the old society, property, family, religion, order, to their army as passwords, and had proclaimed to the counter-revolutionary crusaders, in this sign thou shalt conquer. From that moment, as soon as one of the numerous parties which had gathered under this sign against the June insurgents seeks to hold the revolutionary battlefield in its own class interest, it goes down before the cry, property, family, religion, order. 
He continues, quote, We're not barrack and bivouac, saber and musket, mustache and uniform, finally bound to hit upon the idea of rather saving society once and for all by proclaiming their own regime as the highest and freeing civil society completely from the trouble of governing itself. Brilliant passage, but hilarious. Explain the dynamic that Marx is describing in France and also whether you think it might be applied, his analysis might be applied to the U.S. today, where the national security state and systems of mass policing and mass incarceration haven't led to dictatorship, but they have devoured so much of our nominally democratic system. Yeah, the dynamic he's describing is, I think, that that same one that we were talking about before, where there's a kind of every political group is basically... Um, you know, willing to use uh, repression against its immediate adversary, right? And, uh, you know, that that process in Marx's way of thinking about it gradually basically shrivels the core of parliamentary rule and the repressive apparatuses of the state uh, are kind of stepping into the vacuum at every single point, right? So, you know, if you're willing to you know, use the knout use the against uh, the working class, you know, if the petty bourgeoisie is willing to support that, then the big bourgeoisie is going to be willing to support that against the democratic petty bourgeoisie. And finally, the army is going to be willing to sit just to, to openly use that against the big bourgeoisie itself. So that Because the army is getting strengthened the whole time at every turn. Right. So, you know, I think that's, yeah, that, I guess that's the dynamic that he seems to be de- de- describing there. And then your question about how that's a- applicable to today is an interesting one. Um, I mean, it, it's in the United States is in such a strange political moment now because, I mean, how do we even understand, you know, the, who, who is supporting the, the really the, the, the security? Obviously, since, uh, you know, particularly since the Max 2011 boot. attacks, you know, we've had this <laughs> massive expansion of the security state. I mean, it's, it's just completely out of control. But this is now being presented to us by kind of parts of the liberal left, at least, as a sort of this is a kind of guarantor of the division of powers or something like that. I mean, it's a bizarre situation. In this sense, obviously, I mean, Trump is actually somewhat different from Bonaparte because he has such he does kind of try to ply the soldiers with with the equivalent of you know cold chicken and garlic sausages but it doesn't <laughs> seem to be working very well <laughs> that's what I would say I think there's a real I think there's a lot of mistrust and unease um, actually particularly in the hard core of the national security state vis-a-vis Trump that's at least my impression of what's going on. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's a dynamic that is very peculiar to, to the U.S. in this moment. One thing that I take from that passage, and that really informed the argument that I make in my book that I'm finishing on the history of immigration politics, is just the way that leaders of both political parties for decades turning to increasingly harsh immigration enforcement and border security measures led to the, for lack of a better term, Overton window on on that question being moved further and further towards repression to the point where the the apparatuses of repression take on sort of a path-dependent life and logic of their own. 
I mean, I think that's that's got to be right. Yeah, I mean, obviously on that on this business about immigration, which is so central to the to the whole Trump thing, and I'm glad that you're writing this book about the history of immigration politics. That'll be very important, I think. I mean, that is the one place where I think there is an attempt to, to really, really kind of go back. I, I, I see it as a kind of an attempt to go back to the 1920s or something, but maybe precisely, you know, precisely views on that, you know, but I don't know quite how to fit that into our conversation about the 18th Brumaire, but maybe it does fit in. Marx also analyzes the role that imperialism played in Bonaparte's rise. His first cabinet was drawn from the party of order, which again, is comprised of these two royalist factions. And at their very first cabinet meeting, that cabinet resolved to undertake an unconstitutional expedition to Rome behind the National Assembly's back to crush the Roman Republic in partnership with reactionary monarchies across the continent. What role did Marx see militarism and imperialism playing in the destruction of bourgeois democracy in France? And what does that tell us about the relationship between militarism and bourgeois democracy more generally? The French Second Empire, in a way, invents the the whole notion of modern imperialism. Uh, well, it begins before, as you're saying, with this kind of, you know, attempt to crush these revolutionary regimes, particularly, you know, the Roman Republic. I don't think that Marx himself ever really fully fleshes out a theory of what we would think about as imperialism, per se. When he uses the term imperialism, I think he's really referring to the myth of the empire uh, and the sort of political uses of that. It's obviously very important politically. It's a kind of, you could you could think about it as a kind of early version of um you know, kind of the social imperialist uh, idea. That is to say that, you know, we use uh, militarism and imperialism to incorporate the subordinate classes. And there's the myth of, you know, French national um, greatness and, and, and all of that. But the rise of, of Napoleon, of the, of the second Napoleon in France is really the thing that sets off the beginnings of, the, the, of classic European you could say, you know, interstate imperialism anyway, you know. And of course, his defeat at the Battle of Sedan in, in 1870 and then the subsequent Paris Commune of 1871 and the unification of, of Germany under Bismarck, that's really, you know, that's the beginning of the inter-imperialist competition that will ultimately lead to, you know, World War One and, and all of that um, kind of stuff. So I think that Marx sees a... We could say a kind of a domestic political use of national greatness, but I don't think he has a fully developed analysis yet in the 18th Brumaire, really, of imperialism as a, as, a, as a real economic dynamic. Marx was not just interested in the state abstractly, but rather particularly in the rise of the modern bureaucratic state. He wrote, quote, The state enmeshes, controls regulates, superintends, and tutors civil society from its most comprehensive manifestations of life down to its most insignificant stirrings, from its most general mode of being to the private existence of individuals. Where through the most extraordinary centralization, this parasitic body acquires a ubiquity, an omniscience, a capacity for accelerated mobility, and an elasticity which finds a counterpart only in the helpless dependence, 
in the loose shapelessness of the actual body politics. It is obvious that in such a country, the National Assembly forfeits all real influence when it loses command of the ministerial posts, if it does not at the same time simplify the administration of the state, reduce the army officials as far as possible, and, finally, let civil society and public opinion create organs of their own, independent of the governmental power. But it is precisely the maintenance of that extensive state machine and its numerous ramifications that the material interests of the French bourgeoisie are interwoven in the closest fashion. Here, Marx seems to be making a complicated argument about, one, the role that a powerful, centralized, administrative state can play in assisting the bourgeoisie in their political domination and capital accumulation, and then the the contradictions therein. And then two, and I'm not sure if I'm reading this part right, he seems to be saying that true democracy, or at least suggesting that true democracy would require that civil society maintain bases of power outside and independent of the state. What should we make of this passage? Well, one of the really interesting things about that passage is the term civil society there, actually, because I think that's the only time where civil society in Marx's work, or one of the very few times where civil society in Marx's works, is not used in the sense of bourgeois society. It's used in the sense of society outside the state. And I should look at the at the at the original German, but you know that's the that, that's the a very important um, you know uh, kind of thing to, to to note there. On the second point that you're raising, I mean, it, of course, for Marx, um, Marx's political vision is profoundly critical of the state. You know, Marx obviously sees the state and this back i mean this is back to the earliest hegelian writings the state itself is an expression of political alienation it's the alienation of human freedom onto these institutions that are outside of everyday life and his initial articulation of the project of what he calls human emancipation is to reabsorb the state into civil society by which he means you know, some kind of form of life that could be described as stateless. And of course, again, as we, you know, in, in, in his writings on the commune, he's very clear about that. There's another thing I think that might be worth thinking through here that's a, a slightly more complicated matter. And that is to say, it's easy to read this and it's totally makes a lot of sense to read this as an analysis. This is the modern state. It's bureaucratic and, and it's a machine and all that. It, it sounds something like, a little bit like something like what Max Weber would talk about. But it's also true that there, there's a sense in which this, this Napoleonic regime is also the latest edition of a very old political order that goes all the way back to before the French Revolution, the French absolutist state. The sort of thing that Perry Anderson writes about. Absolutely. So it has its roots in the peasantry, right? So it is a real, you know, and, and, and when Marx writes about that, he's, he's very, he's very um, clear that he's talking specifically about the French case. So I happen to think that, there's a, that the relationship between the French bourgeoisie and the state, the nature of that state and its relationship to the peasantry 
I'm not sure that that's that I'm I'm not sure that's quite a description of what we would think about as the moderns the modern state per se. Um, so that's something that should be should be thought through. But on the question of whether Marx is, of course, you know, Marx is, of course, one of the great, great, uh, great critics of the state, you know, not a statist at all. On this issue, Marx writes quite poignantly about how bourgeois democracy, at least in the French case, I'm not, I'll leave it up to you to say whether we can generalize, permits purportedly universal freedoms to be enjoyed only in very limited, particular and self-interested ways. He writes, quote, where it forbids these liberties entirely to the others or permits enjoyment of them under conditions that are just so many police traps, this always happens solely in the interests of public safety, that is, the safety of the bourgeoisie, as the Constitution prescribes. Thus, so long as the name thus, so long as the name of freedom was respected, and only its actual realization prevented, of course in a legal way, the constitutional existence of liberty remained intact, inviolate, however mortal the blows dealt to its existence in actual life. My question is, what was Marx critiquing at the time, and how might we apply this analysis to the U.S.? What, what this makes me think of, in the U.S. case, is that there has forever in this country been what Aziz Rana describes as the two faces of American freedom, this prizing of egalitarian liberty for American insiders, fundamentally premised on the brute subjugation of and violence against those who are deemed outsiders, or as Marx says, others. And we see that in the opposition to King George's restriction of white settlement on indigenous lands that fueled the revolution in Jacksonian populism that celebrated the slaughter of natives and the enslavement of Africans all the way through today when politicians of all stripes spout off about American liberty and freedom and, of course, about foisting those things on other countries at gunpoint, all while presiding over an historically unprecedented system of mass incarceration. One way of thinking about it is the, is, is, is what you're saying, this, this essentially idea. I mean, obviously, what Marx is thinking about is the class dimension of this. So the restriction of these, you know, the restriction basically of liberties to the, to the circle of property, more or less. Also, just there's a lot of stuff in there about the hypocrisy of when constitutional rules are respected and how they're being respected and the kind of fetishism of rules and stuff like that. Um, and you're talking about really these exclusions along, you know, these sort of fundamental exclusions between basically racially identified insiders and outsiders in the citizen, in the citizen body, which I think is a, analogous in some way to, to to what he's discussing there. But then there's also this other thing that's going on, I think, which is the idea that, uh, of course, this is this older idea that. Um, you know, formal citizenship itself is a bit of a sham, right? Uh, even th- even for those who have it, um, that you know, in a sense, the you know the the the, uh, the we we act as citizens only in this kind of imaginary public sphere that has no real reality, and obviously then extend that to the notion that you know, in in the factory, of course, the working class and so on. 
uh, has loses all of its rights um, as a citizen. So that there's a, however expansive or limited the category of citizenship itself is, political citizenship per se is also just limited. And those are, I think he's sort of trying to make both those points there. I would see them as even more the sort of American context and when Marx is describing as even more consonant than that if you think about, for example, the white settler right to indigenous lands, the the Jacksonian populist framework of freedom of white property for for settlement or f- to enslave Africans as as the primary form of protection that a certain type of individual had vis-a-vis the the state. It seems to me that there's in American history this this long history of property rights being the core right respected in this context of settlerism and racialized caste systems, which isn't Marx's context, but it does seem like the the, the commonality is a liberty being reduced to a certain type of property rights, maybe. The point is that I think there are two different kinds of things that maybe we should just be clear about that are both being talked about. I think both you and the 18th Premier are talking about the primacy of certain kinds of rights that are accorded to certain kinds of groups, you know, in, in, in civil society. And then there's the question, there's also this other question that he's, that he's pointing to, which is um, that, you know, the whole notion, the whole notion of rights in the sense that we talk about it is also a problem for him. So I'm just saying that kind of both of these kind of critiques are going along at the same time. And I guess specifically what Marx is arguing that we might be able to apply more generally is that these the way nominally universal rights discourses obscure the particularity, the very class interested particularity of their application. Yeah. And also, I mean, even not nominally universal rights, that is to say, universal rights, to the extent that they are formal, serve to secure inequalities in civil society. The most obvious case of that actually is property. Having, you know, property rights, obviously not meaning rights to property, but meaning that the state will protect uh, those inequalities. Right. So I think that is definitely the case. I want to discuss Marx's critique of social democracy and what you think we might learn from it. He writes, quote, The peculiar character of the social democracy is epitomized in the fact that democratic republican institutions are demanded as a means, not of doing away with two extremes, capital and wage labor, but of weakening their antagonism and transforming it into harmony. The content is the transformation of society in a democratic way, but a transformation within the bounds of the petty bourgeoisie. Only one must not form the narrow-minded notion that the petty bourgeoisie, on principle, wishes to enforce an egoistic class interest. Rather, it believes that the special conditions of its emancipation are the general conditions within the frame of which alone modern society can be saved and the class struggle avoided. The class compromises underlying any social democratic pact between labor and capital always have costs. My question is, what are the costs that Marx is describing in France and what those are or have been in the U.S.? I mean, this term social democracy, as, as, as Marx is using it here, of course, it's a, it's a slightly different thing than what we would think about as sort of social democracy in the 
you know, post post-war Europe or, you know, the, the general ways in which people use it to describe political movements in the advanced capitalist world. Or the welfare but, state. Yeah, the welfare state. It's not quite what he's after here. But the, you know, I think that the idea here is um, the, the central thing, I would say, and, and the thing that I think is very applicable to the current moment in the U.S. in any case, is, of course, the um, notion of class compromise. So you could say that the, the standpoint of the you know, vast majority of kind of left liberal critique of contemporary American politics could be described in Marxist terms as a petty bourgeois, basically, because it is essentially uh, based on the idea uh, there's a there are kind of a series of moral claims about you know the way in which uh, you know everyone should have equal opportunities and we should basically provide things such that there is less kind of social division and social conflict in society right and the problem with that I think this is what Marx is saying too is not to sort of say oh you're terrible you are you are petty bourgeois and bad or whatever i mean the, the the problem i think with this way of thinking about politics is its um strategic blankness um that is it's never clear exactly uh who and how uh, who is going to implement the class compromise on what terms and through what mechanisms uh and i think that marx's central point on this is 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 to really emphasize the importance of class struggle as the mechanism through which any class compromise um is actually imposed and so if you're kind of missing that point uh then you know your your politics in a way is disabled from the get-go Jamel Bowie had a really great column on this in the New York Times today I'm not sure if you saw it I did not I should see that not mentioning Marx but advancing a similar idea he was looking at like what people mean when they talk about centrist and moderate, given that the opinions that people like Bloomberg hold are actually not the most popular ones. So what what does that mean for them to be centrist, given that their ideas are not actually at the center of public opinion? Um, and he writes that what people really mean is that these are politicians who hold to the, quote, belief that meaningful progress is possible without a fundamental challenge to those who hold most of the wealth and power in our society. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good way of thinking um, about it. I mean, I think the way that that people on the left should think about social democracy is not to say, and be very clear about this, I don't think it's to say that we should be going around and saying that, that you know, all these social democrats are terrible because they're reformist or something like that. I think that's a very blinkered and narrow. Marx way. is not arguing for ultra leftism. Yeah, no, it's, it's, but it is to say that there's a paradox, and the paradox is actually the things that social democrats in the U.S. want cannot be achieved without a massive mobilization that is outside of the formal political structures of the society. This is the paradox. And that's what makes them, you know, that's the problem. That's the sense in which I think that social democracy is strategically blank. And I think that's kind of what Marx is after as well. And I, it sounds like the column you were talking about is saying something 
something quite similar, actually. But this is really, I think, the central problem of the of the left in the in the current period. The problem of strategy, and that's kind of the the place where I think a lot of thinking should be should be focused. I want to turn to the recent writing you've done for the New Left Review, including on Trump and the 18th Premier, which is what gave me the idea of inviting you <laughs> to for this discussion. You argue that Trump might represent, quote, a tendency towards neo-Bonapartism, a form of rule that substitutes a charismatic leader for a coherent hegemonic project. Like the original 19th century version, this latter-day Bonapartism is linked to a crisis of hegemony, ultimately stemming from the erosion of the material base that allows the American capitalist class to pursue its own interests while claiming to represent those of society in general. Unlike its prototype, however, the new vision of Bonapartism is not connected to a mass mobilization from below and cannot be understood as a reaction to a threat to the order of property. So if Trump is a neo-Bonapartist, Explain what you mean. In, in trying to understand what's happening here, uh, there were two sort of things that I was thinking about. What, what struck me as potential similarities this is the fragmentation of the American capitalist class into different, you know, sharply kind of opposed factions. Uh, and the other was a process of, of what I saw as a process of profound political atomization in parts of the country, especially in rural parts of the, uh, of the country. Part of the American population relates to politics in, in basically a completely magical mode, uh, in, in my view. In that, that I'm sure people would disagree with me and so on and so forth, but I do think that there is a, there's an element to that. And those two things, I think, kind of coalesce uh, in... in uh, in, in, in Trump to a certain extent. But of course, you know, as I was saying, this is not, it would be wrong to see this as a kind of, you know, reaction to, yeah, where's the June days? There's no June days that we can, that, that we can, um, that we can point to here. Obamacare. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm doubtful, doubtful about, I mean, there is, so, so Obamacare for me, this is a good example in a sense. I mean, I think what's happening in American capitalism, and this is somewhat speculative, but I'll just say it, the very long-term kind of stagnation of, um, of, of American capitalism really from the 1970s until the present day, what is happening is that capitalists are increasingly turning really toward the state as um, not just a, a matter of a framework for protecting their interests, but really as a mechanism for securing their returns. And I think you see that in a number of different things. I actually think Obamacare in some ways is a manifestation of that in the sense that it's obviously this enormous handout to, to private insurance companies. But there are other manifestations as well. I mean, you know, the importance of intellectual property rights being one, and then obviously the super important role of the state in this uh, sort of fracking boom. And opening up Alaska, the Alaskan, the Arctic wildlife exactly. uh, refuge for, for drilling. Yes, exactly. Uh, you know, so basically just stealing and handing out public lands and resources right and left. But what I think is important to see about that is that when capital is so dependent on the state like that, 
it actually fragments the class because it means that it increases the importance that different fractions of capital have direct access to the state. In my view, it is the fragmentation of the American capitalist class that underlies the phenomenon of political, what we call political polarization, right? If it is true, right, that some kind of even quasi-plausible environmental regulation is going to threaten real interests, immediate economic interests of certain fractions of capital, right? Um, and, and so this is kind of ramping up the pressure, I would say, on the state. And, it, and it's the thing, I think it explains the, the very peculiar character of American, of American politics in this period. And at the same time, of course, and the other side of the coin of the way in which capitalist development has played out over the last 40 years or so is what I was saying before is, is, is the, you know, obviously just it, the, the, the system is just not delivering the goods to the people to whom it was delivering some goods before. I mean, this is an obvious enough point, right? And so you have both a kind of um, a hyper polarized political system that is polarized really, I think, primarily because of the fragmentation of capital. And you have a population that is increasingly restive and ignored. And that strikes me as a, as the, as a situation in which, you know, you could have this kind of neo-Bonapartist, what I call a neo-Bonapartist figure. The population is fragmented as well, you argue. You describe, one, indebtedness, two, the, quote, hollowing out of the civil society organizations that once mobilized electoral support for oligarchic political parties, and three, a form of, quote, charismatic leadership that polarizes a serialized public via the media. Those are three key factors that you identify as creating the conditions for Trump's neo-Bonapartism. And then an, another thing that I found really interesting that I think you sort of mentioned once or twice as an, as an aside in one of the pieces in terms of the fragmentation of the capitalist class is the key role of lumpen billionaires, or maybe you call them lumpen millionaires, I don't remember, but the, the, these people like just the, the, these like idiosyncratic weirdos who have become so important on the right, these idiosyncratically weird rich people like Wilbur Ross, like Sheldon Adelson, like uh, um, the Mercers. Yes. Uh, in some respects, the underlying problem here, you get this kind of weird group that comes in. But I, I mean, I think the underlying problem here is really that the, the problem with American, the American politics today is that is not that capital is under threat. It's that it's won so much that its own kind of bizarre features are now coming to the surface. These very peculiar, you know, we have this very odd family kind of situation that is now, you know, operating in the White House. The capitalist class is weirdly disarticulated because there's no pressure on it from below. There's no, there's no constraint on it. There's no place in which it has to formulate its own interests in terms of a national interest. And it can't even really do that given underlying economic realities. That sort of reminds me of Corey Robbins' arguments along those lines. Yes, that's right. That's right. I mean, I think we're in agreement on those points. You argue that Trump is not, as many of his detractors say, and maybe some of his supporters as well, uh, a fascist, but rather embodies a leadership style that is patrimonial, 
meaning that for him, quote, the relationship of the staff to the leader is not an impersonal commitment to the office of state, but a servant's loyalty based on a strictly personal relationship. Explain what you mean, why Trump is not a fascist, and why this leadership style is driving some of the core contradictions of Trump's presidency. The key thing, the key difference, really, for me, uh, between um, Trump and the fascist dictatorships of the 1930s, in terms of the, the way that they rule, is the absence of the political party. Obviously, with someone like Mussolini or Hitler, you have an organization uh, that is held together. It's some kind of ideology. You've got cadre. Right. It has a cadre organization, right? Uh, and, and so there is a kind of medium in which, um, you know, the, the leader can uh, basically transmit orders or, you know, in, in, in Hitler's case, kind of hints to the staff or the followers, the cadre, who then carry them out, right? And, and, and there's a loyalty and there's a cohesion that is built into that. Now, Trump doesn't have that at all. Every relationship that he has with his immediate entourage is purely personal. It's not mediated through any sort of ideological kind of mechanism, nor is it mediated through a, a, a party organization. It's not clear. I mean, it's such a weird situation because it's not clear that even he even has, you know, thoughts in a conventional sense. So, right? I mean, <laughs> no, it's I'm, true. I'm it's quite totally, serious it's totally about accurate. That. No, totally. <laughs> so it's it can't have it. So this this is a hyper, in a sense, a hyper personalized set of relationships that he's uh, that he's entered into. So the one thing that happens with that, I think, is that you know there is no there's no group of disciples per se. I mean, some people say they're Trump loyalists, but this has no meaning really at all. It just means someone who is in the immediate entourage or in favor for some kind of random reason. Yeah, the guy um, the guy he just nominated to head the World Bank, he said he, right. he, called, he called him a very extraordinary man. He's been a supporter for a long time. Exactly. <laughs> so go <laughs> figure, right? I mean, it's, it's really... Um, and so, I mean, the the most obvious consequence of that is just the massive turnover and attrition at the top of the administration. And that's quite different from, you know, the fascist, the fascist organizations were not like that. There wasn't, I mean, there, 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 there were, they were quite loyal in, in, and stable, these, these, these sort of inner, inner circles around the leaders, um, comparatively speaking. And obviously, the other consequence that I was pointing out, which is super obvious, but in a sense, we haven't had a good language for talking about it yet, is the is the conflict with the bureaucracy, which is this conflict between these two different styles of rule, basically, that are just very hard to to mesh with one another. That is, you know, and, and that's, I think, as I was saying, that's this underlying conflict between Trump and the security apparatuses and so on and so forth. And you write that the nature of that conflict between Trump and the bureaucracy is not as all of these liberal Democrats who have become enthralled to the national security state since Trump's election is not about democracy, but rather about a more narrow legalism. 
Yeah, I mean, look, this can't be, um, you know, it's just not plausible to hold up, uh, you know, James Comey and and Robert Mueller as 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 grand Democrats. This is <laughs> this is not what's going on here. There is the the a commitment to. Uh, as we say, you know, kind of law in the sense of, you know, we have to have written rules to follow these, these, um, you know, in order to sort of fulfill. I do think that they have an idea of duty to office, but that doesn't mean democracy. And one of the big problems with the way in which uh, Trump is talked about in the contemporary period is as a threat to democracy, which raises all kinds of questions. I mean, first of all, what is the real nature of the American state? In what sense are we talking about a democracy? That's one set of questions. And then the the other question is, really, this is, this is a matter of styles of rule. It's a matter of what, you know, the great sociologist Max Weber would have called structures of domination, right? The way in which you get people to follow commands. That's the underlying struggle here. It's not so much about you know, democracy uh, versus it's, uh, you know, this, this authoritarian threat per se. And the point of making that argument, I think, for me, is that it is important for, I mean, of course, people are doing this, but in a way, I'm just emphasizing this point that it is just important for people on the left to think about not really just what kind of society or economy they want, but what kind of state. That's, I think, an important thing for us to grapple with. Is one upshot of your analysis that a more ideologically systematic Bannonite version of Trumpism would have been extraordinarily more dangerous? Yes, I would say so. Although I think Bannon is a ridiculous poseur. I mean, (laughs) so the notion and so on that Bannon is this great kind of intellectual of the right is is absurd. He just kind of he he mentions these names that scandalize everyone, like Evola. I've read books. (laughs) Right, exactly. I've read a couple of books. You know. But yeah, that would be a real danger. And when in the immediate aftermath of Trump's election, I was quite more concerned in a sense about that danger. I think it would have required, obviously, in retrospect, it's very clear that it would have required a, a coherence and a discipline that is just structurally absent from this administration. Because I think what it would have required is an attempt to uh, uh, lock in a kind of highly racialized welfare regime, which they can't do at all. I mean, they, they and, and, and they, especially saddled with the Republican Party that they're saddled with. This is a, a virtually an impossibility. Like if he'd done, if he'd done the wall and single payer healthcare simultaneously, that would have been terrifying, frankly. Exactly. And the, the people who understand how to do this are more like people like Matteo Salvini, uh, you know, in in Italy, I would say, um, or in a different way, Viktor Orban in in Hungary. I mean, that's the obviously these are more. This is a more serious um, project in, a, in 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 a lot of ways. But you know, for Trump to do that would also have required this other thing, which is that he would have had to um, he would have had to had some kind of coherent ideology of some sort <laughs> it's so remarkable that the people that, that he's alienated the the people who are most committed to 
the the far right agenda. He's who are most committed and able to do that. I mean, I think that Sessions' removal is hugely significant because Sessions. I mean, and you would know this better than 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 me. I mean, that is the, that was the kind of beating heart of the potential something that would look more like a kind of neo-fascism would really be the, the, the sessions project, I think. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, the political function of calling Trump a fascist, you argue is to prioritize the formation of a popular front between the left and liberals for us all just to join the quote resistance quote, the political logic of pinning the fascist label on Trump is plain enough. It means uniting behind the program of the present Democratic leadership, Pelosi, Schumer, the Clintons, the Obamas, and other superintendents of the oligarchic order, the very project that gave Trump the White House in 2016. My last question is, what sort of analysis then should we embrace if we are to both correctly appraise the current moment and also build the sort of politics that can ultimately go beyond anti-Trumpism, hopefully as soon as 2020. I think that the primary task of the forces of progress, let's put it that way, is to build something like a, a, a real party organization that can draw in you know, new parts of the electorate. But more important than that, can begin a process of intense political education and activation of the population. Because that's what has to be, I think, done over the medium and long term. And and that process is already underway. I mean, as your your show shows it, I mean, there's a lot of things that are very hopeful on this front. So I'm, I'm actually moderately optimistic about this, at least in the medium, um, medium to long term. But that's also why, I mean, that's the other reason that I would just say this in closing. It's the other reason why we don't live in the 1930s, actually, because in a, in a strange way, we're behind that period, right? Because there is no, uh, we don't have those kind of mass mobilizing structures in place. The reaction came first this time. That's right. <laughs> the reaction in some kind of way came first, came before the before the threat. And so the, 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 the problem that we're facing, I think, is just really both a difficult one, but a, but a straightforward one to state. And it, it's the problem of establishing anew whatever the counterpart will be in the 21st century to the mass socialist party of the, of the 19th and 20th centuries. That's the way forward, I think. And there's absolutely nothing original about saying that, I'm aware. But it definitely bears repeating. Dylan Riley, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for talking. Dylan Riley is a professor of sociology at the University of California, Berkeley, and, amongst other things, a member of the New Left Review's editorial committee. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after demonstrating how the class struggle created circumstances and relationships that made it possible for a grotesque mediocrity to play a hero's part, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. 
we are posting new episodes every week, sometimes twice, this week once. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going strong. Even a few bucks is huge. 